Good morning to you again. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'll invite you to take that and open with me to Luke chapter 20. We're going to be finishing the chapter this morning and considering the first few verses of of chapter 21. This is one of those places in the Scriptures where there's an unfortunate chapter break. The chapters and verses aren't inspired, and this one is rather unfortunate. Um, So we're going to end chapter 20 and then go to chapter uh, 21 down to verse 4. We'll start in verse 45 of chapter 20. I've seen a handful of folks fanning themselves in the service, to which I say, Amen. If you are too hot, there are air conditioners in the back, and you can go and turn it down lower if you want to. You have pastoral authorization to do that because it does get warm in here. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 45. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to His disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And He said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we do thank You that You are a God who speaks and You have spoken both clearly and decisively and with finality, Father, in Your Word that when we open the Scriptures, we are hearing the very voice of God speaking to His people down through the ages, perfect, complete, without error for our good. Lord, help us today to hear Your Word with ears of faith. We pray, God, that Your Word would triumph over unbelief in our hearts and that we would be built up, Father, and strengthened for the days ahead to stand firm and to walk by faith. Father, I pray that You keep me from error. I pray that You would bless Your people now with discernment, Father, that they would hold fast to the things that are true and so be saved in the day of Christ's coming. We pray these things in His name, Father, confident that You hear us, for He is risen from the dead. Amen. In 1944, C.S. Lewis gave an address at King's College in London entitled, The Inner Ring. The Inner Ring. That title illustrates Lewis's aim. Speaking to a class of new graduates, Lewis warned that most careers and callings consist of an outer ring and an inner ring. The outer ring is where you start, and it's the place where you often feel small and overlooked. The inner ring, by contrast, is the place for the elites. It's the place that you aspire to reach so that other people will see you as important in your field. And Lewis said that the desire for this inner ring was a nearly universal pull in life. Quote, Lewis said, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, one of the most dominant elements 
is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Now, Lewis gave this address in the mid-20th century, but in a way, in a way, he anticipated today's world. The drive for the inner ring is another way of saying that we crave notoriety. We revere celebrity. We are often content to cultivate the appearance of something rather than its actual presence. All of those things are manifestations of Lewis's inner ring, this desire to be in, to be noticed, to be somebody rather than nobody. And that's all through our culture, isn't it? We can quickly come up with examples. We can think of social media and its toxic power of self-promotion. Or we can think of that strangest of all 21st century phenomenons, people who are famous for being famous. People who have no commendable achievements, we just all know about them. Our culture thrives on and profits from the pull of the inner ring. And so Lewis was prophetic in that regard. But friends, the sad reality is that the pull of the inner ring is not confined to the culture. It shows up in the church, too, in surprising ways. You may have seen the Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. Have you heard about this? I don't have Instagram, but someone showed it to me. Preachers and Sneakers. It chronicles the extravagant wardrobes of so-called celebrity pastors. And you might think, yep, that's the inner ring, all right. That's celebrity culture gone to the church. That's, that's gross. True, it is. But the problem goes deeper. The guy who started Preachers and Sneakers, do you know what he has now? A book deal. And a website that sells Preachers and Sneakers merch. Do you see it? We, we're drawn to people who are in. And even when we spend all of our time pointing out the people who are in, what are we trying to do? Get in and be one of them. We're drawn to notoriety. We, we crave celebrity, even in the church. The point I'm trying to make is this. Lewis's inner ring is simply a restatement of the prophet Jeremiah's words from a long time ago. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Deep in our nature, hardwired from the fall, is the desire to elevate our own importance so that other people are impressed with the kind of person we appear to be. And with that comes the corresponding desire, also hardwired from the fall, to denigrate people or things we deem small. Lewis's inner ring is echoing Jeremiah, and they're both telling us something about ourselves, something about human nature. What's the remedy to this situation? How do we break the pull of the inner ring? How do we stand guard against the deceitfulness of our own hearts that loves to elevate ourselves over other people? What's the remedy? That's where we turn this morning in Luke's Gospel. There's a powerful simplicity to today's text that speaks precisely to this human situation. As you heard in our reading, this passage is built around a clear contrast. On the one hand, Jesus addresses the scribes who were part of the Jewish religious establishment. These guys were the definition of the inner ring. 
and they knew it. In fact, they flaunted it everywhere they went. I'm in, you're out. But on the other hand, Jesus highlights a poor widow. She is very much not on the inner ring. She's an outsider on the lowest rung of society. The widow is almost unnoticeable while everything the scribes do is for the purpose of being noticed. In the world's eyes, then, it's clear who you should want to be like. And yet, Jesus' entire point is that the world's eyesight is wrong. The world sees things wrong. The scribes appear in, but in reality, they're out. It's the widow, the one you almost didn't see, the one you were going to overlook. She's the one you should want to be like. She's the one that you should emulate. And that's the value of this passage, brothers and sisters. With a clear and powerful contrast, Jesus cuts to the heart of human nature. He shows us what we're like. And then with an incisive warning, He calls us to lay down the pursuit of the inner ring and live for the simplicity of following Him. You see, it's a final object lesson before the events of the Passion begin. In a sense, the widow is the culmination of all of Jesus' teaching on discipleship. She's the final picture. And that means there's much for us to learn this morning from her example. So in terms of an outline, we're going to keep it pretty simple. There are two examples in this passage, one negative and one positive, and that means we're going to have two points. One, a warning, and the other, an exhortation. So let's consider each one in turn. We begin with the scribes in verses 45 to 47, and the warning is this, beware spiritual self-promotion. Beware spiritual self-promotion. Right from the start, it's clear that Jesus intends to warn His disciples. There's no ambiguity in verse 45. Listen again. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to His disciples, Beware the scribes. So think of a security guard whose job is to guard the gate at a military base. That guard has to live with a constant state of watchfulness because he can't let the, he can't let the enemy in. He can't let his guard down, no matter how quiet things appear at that moment. That's the sense of Jesus' warning here. Watchfulness. Be alert. Don't let them in. He warns against the scribe's entire approach to life. Notice how immediately following the warning, Jesus begins to describe the way the scribes live. He describes their attire, their attitude, their relationship to others, even their spiritual practices. The point then is clear. Don't live like these men. Don't follow their example. Don't do what they do. Let's press this a little deeper though. What exactly makes the scribes' way of life so dangerous? Why is their example worthy of such a warning from Jesus? Well, when you look at the description, what you find is a way of life that is spiritually deadly. Everything about the scribes' way of life is aimed at spiritual self-promotion, which will kill you. It starts with a consistent desire to be first. Pick it up in verse 46, where Jesus describes the scribes' public persona. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes 
and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Long robes signify that these men were not laborers. They're not blue collar. These are the, these are the so-called important people who can afford to wear impractical clothing because they're not going to have to get their hands dirty. What's more, their social life furthered that conclusion. If there was an event, the scribes were front and center. You had to address them with the correct title and you had to seat them in the right place, which was up front. So from their wardrobe to their social life, the scribes have one goal, to be first. To be first. In fact, the prefix for first appears twice in the original of verse 46. Those phrases, the best seats and the places of honor, both of those phrases have the prefix for first. And that's the scribe's goal. Their desire is to be first with everyone else second. In fact, I don't even really care where you sit. I just want to be first. Now ask yourself, friends, what has Jesus taught us about the nature of His kingdom? What does discipleship in the kingdom demand according to Jesus? Luke 14.11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Luke 13.30, Some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. That's why Jesus is warning His disciples. Because this way of life only ends up in one place. And that's outside the kingdom of God. Still, the reason for Jesus' warning continues. Look at verse 47. The scribes not only desire to be first, but they also use their authority to serve themselves. Beware of the scribes, Jesus says, who devour widows' houses. In the first century, widows were among the most vulnerable members of the community, especially older widows who wouldn't be getting remarried. They often relied on the religious leaders, like the scribes, to properly settle their estates, help them get the most money for their assets so that they would have some long-term care. And that means that people like the scribes had a considerable amount of sway in the lives of these widows. But what do the scribes do according to Jesus? They devour widows' houses. I could try to give you a sense of the original language here, but I don't think you need any help on this one. Devour. It's such a violent, exhaustive word. Like ravenous wolves, the scribes scarf down the livelihood of these most vulnerable Members, like pirates, they plunder those whom they should care for. They devour them. Friends, this is near the essence of wickedness. To mistreat another person made in the image of God is always a sinful act. But when that image bearer is weak and you are strong, that's wickedness of the highest order. And that's why Jesus warns His disciples. The scribes use their position to serve themselves. It all comes to a climax in the final piece of Jesus' description. This is the end of the warning. Verse 47, the scribes turn piety into pretense. They're hypocrites. Look at verse 47. 
Beware the scribes who for pretense make long prayers. If there's any religious act that demands humility, then prayer is at the top of the list. Prayer is nothing less than approaching the presence of Almighty God. It's, positioning the, it's petitioning the Creator, the One who made you and sustains your life, of all the things that ought to promote humility, prayer is at the top of the list. How do the scribes pray? For pretense, Jesus says. It's all a show. Their focus is not on humbling themselves before God. Their focus is on exalting themselves in the eyes of other people. This most humble of acts becomes a platform for self-promotion. And we shouldn't be surprised at this, though we should certainly be saddened. We shouldn't be surprised. The elements of verse 47, the elements of verse 47 go together. If you're going to devour another person's house, if you're going to take advantage of the weak, then almost certainly your, your piety, your, your spiritual devotion is devoid of any kind of life. You can't devour another person and then engage in humble prayer before God. You can't mistreat people you're supposed to care for and then think that God is going to hear you when you pray. That's not how life works. The human heart doesn't work that way. We can't separate our lives into these neat columns where one area has no bearing on another. If you devour another person, then rest assured you're not praying to God in any way that honors Him. So when we put these things together, we can see very clearly why Jesus senses the need to warn His disciples. The scribes desire to be first, which is the opposite of discipleship. They use their position to serve themselves, which is the opposite of the ministry Jesus exemplifies. And they turn piety into pretense, revealing how bankrupt their hearts are before God. These are not people to emulate. These are men to avoid. And so Jesus warns them. What's the result of this way of life? What do you get if you live this way? Jesus tells us. And this applies the warning. Look at the end of verse 47. They will receive the greater condemnation. Friends, the word greater means more severe. And condemnation there refers to a verdict handed down by a judge. So what is Jesus talking about? He's, a ta he's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about the last day. When all of humanity will stand before the living God and Christ Himself will serve as judge. And on that day, Jesus says, the scribes will receive a more severe judgment. More severe relative to whom? Jesus doesn't tell us, but that shouldn't lessen the effect. When you live like the scribes, the outcome is not exaltation, it's not glory, it's judgment and condemnation. Just as Jesus said to His disciples, those who are first are going to be last. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled eternally. So how should we respond to this warning from Jesus? This is no joke, as you can tell. Jesus is deadly serious. And He plainly intends to warn His followers 
So how should we respond? Well, to begin with, we ought to affirm that this warning applies to us. It applies to us. The fact that Jesus issues the warning at all indicates that the capacity for this kind of spiritual self-promotion resides in all of us. If the issue were confined to the scribes, then we could merely observe them in the laboratory of Jesus' description and everything would be okay. But He doesn't just describe the the scribes, He warns us against them. And that means it applies to us. He's talking to us. This capacity for spiritual self-promotion resides in all of us. It's part of our fallen human nature. We love to exalt ourselves. And so, there's this kind of humble self-apprehension that ought to mark the Christian life. A humble kind of self-apprehension. I'm wary. I'm wary of myself. Now, I want to be clear on this. I don't mean that we need to think horribly about ourselves and we don't need to engage in endless periods of self-loathing. Those things don't honor the Lord. And I don't mean that we never acknowledge the means of grace that God has given to each of us from our various gifts to the unique ways we may be able to serve the body of Christ. I don't mean any of those things. When I say humble self-apprehension, I mean simply that we recognize this tendency to exalt ourselves resides in all of us. We all carry it with us. We ought to take seriously that this kind of spiritual self-promotion would be our natural pursuit if left to ourselves. And that, in turn, ought to lead us to a regular practice of self-reflection. A regular practice of self-reflection. Why am I doing what what I'm doing as a Christian? Am I seeking God's approval or the approval of others? How am I using the position that God has given me to serve others, particularly those who are weak, or to serve myself? Here's a good one. Is the spiritual devotion that I display in public the same as what I display in private? Or to use the language of of this passage, do my prayers in public match the way that I pray in private? The warning applies to all of us, or else Jesus wouldn't have given it. The second way that we ought to respond is we need to regularly humble ourselves under God's Word. We need to regularly humble ourselves under God's Word. You may know that the scribes in Jesus' day were entrusted with teaching God's law. They studied the Scriptures for their job. That was their job, to study the Scriptures so that they could teach people. These were the Bible men, in other words. And yet, these students of the Scriptures were remarkably hard-hearted towards other people. Imagine reading every day in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that you ought to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and then going out and devouring a widow's house. Imagine doing that. These men were responsible to study the Scriptures and yet they were comfortably content to mock God 
by turning the Scriptures into pretense. And so from this, I take away this sobering realization. There is a way of approaching Scripture that makes a game out of God's Word. There's a way to study the Bible that misses the point. And therefore, we ought to be on our knees every day that we would not end up in such a place. We ought to regularly pray for the spirits to keep our hearts soft to God's Word, to keep our attitudes humble before Scripture. What a terrible place to be when the Bible becomes little more than a prop in your performance of spirituality. And so this is my exhortation to us, brothers and sisters, trying to take Jesus' warning seriously. This is my exhortation. Pray every day for a humble heart that submits to the Word of God. I cannot overstate how massively significant this is for the spiritual health of not only your life, but also the spiritual health of the church. Of all the warnings that the scribes could give us, this is perhaps the most important one. Beware of toying around with the Bible where you make it a game and not where you take it to heart. That's a sure sign of spiritual self-promotion. And that's why Jesus warns us. So far, we've just thought about the negative side of this passage, the things that we ought to avoid. What's the positive side of the text? What are the things that we ought to pursue? That's where we turn next as Jesus shifts His attention from the scribes to the widow. She's the counterexample that provides the commendable picture of discipleship. So from verses 1 and 4, 1 to 4 in chapter 21, we hear this exhortation, pursue the humble simplicity of faith. Pursue the humble simplicity of faith. The note of humility begins right away. Listen again to verses 1 and 2 and, and catch the very quiet action of the widow. Verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now the reason Luke notes that Jesus saw this woman's offering is because most people would not have seen it or would not have paid attention. That's not because the woman is hiding. It's because the sizable offerings of all of the rich would overshadow her. Luke doesn't tell us how much the rich are putting in, but that's because the size of the offering is not actually the point of this scene. Jesus is not making a point about how much or how little you ought to give. Jesus is about to make a point regarding faith. That's what He's aiming at. And He does this by commending the widow. Look again at verse 3. And He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Again, within the context of the passage, the widow is clearly the counterexample to the scribes. They practice their religion for show, but the widow's offering is different. That's why Jesus says she put in more than all the others. It's because her offering is an overflow of the heart. Still, Jesus' commendation 
requires some explanation, doesn't it? At least I think it does. The widow's offering is literally small. It's about one-eighth of a penny. So Jesus can't be speaking in monetary terms at this point. Compared to other people, the widow has given something of very little monetary value. So what is Jesus' point? Well, notice verse 4, where Jesus explains why the widow's offering was more than other people's. Verse 4, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now, let's be clear again on something. Jesus is not denigrating those who gave more. He is not saying that larger gifts are somehow less honoring to God. He's not saying that those who give out of their material abundance are not acting in devotion to God. The point is not the size of the offering. Rather, Jesus' point is that the widow's offering reveals the source of her confidence. The rich give out of their abundance. So even when they give a lot, they've still got a lot to live on. They're going to have to display their devotion to God in other ways, other than what they can give. Because if they give a lot, they still got a lot. The widow, on the other hand, gives all that she has. The only place she has left to turn is to God. When she puts the two small copper coins in, it's as though she's saying, God, you're all that I have left. My only hope is You. My faith rests solely on You. My life depends only on You. And I trust that You will sustain me. That's why she gave more. So in that sense, think of how different the widow is from the scribes. The scribes are all about earthly appearances. Their piety is for pretense. They can't fathom losing their standing in life, which is why they walk around in those ridiculous long robes that demand everyone's attention. But the widow is different. In a way, she loses her life. Think about it. She gives away all she has to live on. She loses her life. But in the end, she finds her life with God. She trusts that her life is with God. And she does this quietly, without fanfare. She doesn't make a grand announcement that she is giving away all that she has to live on. She doesn't posture and preen so that other people notice her piety. Instead, instead, she just quietly worships God and goes on with her day. She humbly trusts that God will care for her. And if no one sees, then the widow doesn't care. She's not acting for show. She's acting in faith. You see, the widow embodies discipleship according to the kingdom of God, where the last are first and the humble are exalted. I said earlier that the widow is essentially the culmination of Jesus' teaching on discipleship, and I'm going to repeat that here. She's the final embodiment in Luke's Gospel of what it looks like to follow the Lord. It's so kind of God that the picture is so simple. What does it mean that you follow the Lord? You entrust yourself entirely to Him, believing that He will give you what you need to live. You place your confidence solely in God. And you do so humbly. And that's the point that I want to emphasize to you this morning. Many of you, Many of you, like me, probably sense the smallness of your Christian life. 
Most days, it may seem like you were just going through the motions of another day. And the idea of making an impact for the kingdom of God seems as distant from your life as Mars is from Earth. You're just trying to hang on. You're just scratching for faith in a world full of people who all seem to be on the inner ring of what God is doing while you're on the outside. If that's how your days appear, friends, then I would call your attention to the widow in Luke chapter 21. Here is a life devoted to the things of God and essentially no one sees. No one notices. And still, she acts with a heart of faith. She gives what she can, and she trusts that God is honored. She acts in faith, she gives what she can, and she trusts that God is honored. Friends, that's how God is calling you and me to live. Simply, humbly, even quietly, doing what God has called us to do, and doing it out of a heart that trusts Him completely. So if I could impress upon you this morning one one truth, it would be that the inner ring of God's kingdom is not populated with significant people who did incredible things. It's populated with widows who gave two small copper coins. It's populated with everyday Christians who walk by faith, entrusting themselves to the Lord wholeheartedly and humbly. So wherever you are, with whatever resources you have, give all that you can to the Lord, trusting that He's honored not by the amount that you can give and not by the extent of the impact that you can measure. He's honored by faith. He's honored when you give all that you can and trust that He will be enough. Give all that you can because that's how God is glorified when humble people depend solely on Him. Of course, some of you may be sitting there and thinking, but I still don't know what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. (laughs) I want to live like this, but when I wake up tomorrow and the day smacks me between the eyes, what do I do then? My answer is not flashy. I'm not a flashy guy. The answer is, do whatever it is that God has given you to do tomorrow and do it with all of your might to the glory of God. That's what you do. I said it a few weeks ago, but I'll say it again. The most impactful professor that I had in seminary used to tell us all the time, God's will for your life is whatever He's given you to do today. Because you can't get yesterday back and you're not promised tomorrow. So when you wake up tomorrow... And before you get out of the bed, the smallness of your life hits you in the face and you think, what am I doing? You're doing God's will with whatever He's given you to do today. So get up and give everything that you have to what God has given you to do and trust that He's honored in that. That's the humble simplicity of faith. It doesn't wait around for something more important to serve God. Humble faith serves Him right now in whatever He's given you to do. I said earlier in the sermon that no one saw the widow's offering. But that's not entirely accurate. Jesus saw her, didn't He? Jesus noticed her act of faith. 
Jesus saw that she gave everything, that she relied solely upon God. And that's the final encouragement from this text, brothers and sisters. For the Christian, no act of faith, no matter how small, goes unnoticed. No ministry for the Lord, no matter how minuscule it might seem to the world, escapes Jesus' eye. No act of faith, no matter how small, goes unnoticed. As the Lord of all the earth, Christ sees all, and on the final day, on the final day, He will reward each of His disciples by saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And friends, no inner ring, no matter how exclusive, can compare to hearing those words. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to serve You. We recognize that the pull of the scribes resides in all of us. We don't shake our heads and wag our fingers at how foolish they are because we see too much of ourselves in them. And so we pray, God, that You would make us like the widow who humbly, faithfully, quietly does the work that God has given her to do. She relies entirely upon You And in that, you are glorified. Would you make us that kind of people, God? Would you help us to serve you wherever you have, wherever you have us, with whatever you've given us? Would you help us to do it with all of our might to the glory of God? And we trust that you will be honored, Father. And we look forward to the day when we see Christ and hear his words and enter into the joy of our master. We pray in his name. Amen.